Uh, with decision making, I think that uh, we probably all fall into about three uh, different camps. I think as I looked at them this week, as I thought about them, I think we have the bull, uh, the deer, uh, and the ostrich. Uh, I wonder which one of these you are. The bull just charges ahead uh, with uh, any decision. And then you've got the deer who's a bit worried, a little bit cautious uh, to make uh, any decision. And then the ostrich, just really well, they don't even want to think about it. And so they just bury their heads uh, in the sand. Which one uh, are you? I think making decisions is hard. I think we often know in our heart of hearts uh, which is the right decision uh, to make. We pray about it, we look at the facts, we ask our friends for advice, and then we're left just with the hard bit. We have to actually make the decision. As Ezra concludes uh, today, as we just heard, we see uh, the introduction uh, of the, the book's main character, Ezra, uh, and we see his return to Jerusalem as he, God's chosen man for this moment, uh, he returns. He finds a pretty bad situation uh, for God's chosen people have become mixed together with the world. As it's revealed, uh, we see that a hard decision is left for him and for the people. And I think we see that the people all know what the right answer is, but that doesn't make it uh, any easier. We'll look at how the leaders need to make hard decisions and how difficult this can be. As we examine these next four chapters, as we uh, conclude Ezra today, I think the main point of this section, if you're taking notes, is the people of God are to be devoted, holy, and set apart from the world. The people of God are to be devoted, holy, and set apart from the world. We have two points for our time, uh, and really our first point is a man of devotion, and that we're going to be looking first at chapters 7 and 8, a man of devotion. So looking there at Ezra 7.1, we see who is on the throne. We see that some 57 years have passed since the completion uh, of the temple that we heard about last week in chapter 6, with the lights kind of having dimmed on that section uh, on the temple building. We now just see this one spotlight uh, here uh, on our main protagonist of this drama. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I used to love watching WWE wrestling uh, when I was growing up. And in this uh, first six verses here of chapter seven, I think we have a big announcement similar to what we used to hear from the guy in the middle of the ring about Ezra. We have ladies and gentlemen, all the way from Sariah, all the way from Aaron, the chief priest, a student of the law a skilled scribe, we have Ezra. Here he is being announced. We have literally the A to Z of Ezra's lineage for us from Zadok all the way back to Aaron. See that Ezra's priestly heritage, impeccable, from Zadok all the way to Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses. So we see straight away that Ezra's qualifications just being laid out for us. He's not just another guy. Verse 6 tells us that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Who he was 
is important. We also see that he is uniquely qualified for the role. So much of uh, that verse 6 tells us that the king recognized this. We see there that it says it granted him all that he asked for. I think what's fascinating here is the fact that the people clearly had the scriptures. The law of Moses was no doubt the Pentateuch or the Torah, the, the first five books of the same Bible that we have. Now we don't here see the, the scriptures being debated, uh, but the law of God we see was written. It was known by this people. Sadly, what we'll see is they had not been following it very closely and needed instructions, but they knew what it was. They understood its authority, and here we're introduced to a man who knew it. He studied it. He was an expert. He had stopped and studied, drilled down into the Word of God, taking seriously what it said. This is the best way that he knew how to lead God's people. He could not have known what lay ahead. We see clearly that Ezra was prepared for it. I think we value this, uh, don't we, in other areas of life. If someone wants to be an Olympian, we expect them to be experts in their sport. We expect them to devote years of their life to it. If someone's a professional musician or even a half-decent musician, we know that they've devoted years of sitting, practicing, long before anyone gives them an audience. Ezra here shows us that it is the same with those who serve and lead God's people. If you are leading a Bible study, if you are teaching a foundations class or preaching on a Sunday, then you should labor to understand and be reading your Bible. Verse 6, I think, touches on this. And then in verse 10 uh, there, we see that he was able to do all that he was called to by Artaxerxes and God himself because, it says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. The 4 in verse 10 just means because. Ezra was disciplined in his desire for ministry, and so in his responsibility in leading the people, he wanted to be effective, as effective as possible. Something we see regularly with those who God uses for faithful ministry. The qualifications are clear and uncomplicated. We see that here. They, those people love God. They love his word. And they love God's people enough to make those first two things a priority. We should want to teach, friends. If we're leading Bible studies, if we're meeting with other believers, we should want to teach and encourage what is right, what is true, and to guard and protect the gospel that we've been given through God's word. We should take our study of his word seriously. Don't have to be a scholar. Don't have to have a PhD, but you should desire to be faithful. Ezra, we, I think we see here, wasn't just doing it to tick a box or to be seen to be doing the right thing among the people, but we also see that he lives it out as he instructs others. Verse 10 uh, ends uh, showing us that he studied, he sh and, and the reason why, to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. There we see that Ezra was walking the walk and talking the talk. His discipline in the word showed itself all across 
his life. I don't know about you, but how many of us are guilty of just ticking the box here on a Sunday. Here to maybe impress someone, maybe your wife, maybe one of the pastors, maybe someone who invited you, but you really don't want to be here. When we get home, we don't pick up the Bible. We don't think again about what we've heard here today. Friends, for some of us, our lives don't reflect what we claim to believe. Friends, is your Christian life just a a Sunday stopover instead of a weekly walk? A Sunday stopover instead of a weekly walk? Verses 6 and 10, just repeat this. And then we see the hand of the Lord is mentioned uh, seven times uh, in our chapters today. There is no doubt that the Lord uses those who are obedient and faithful in his service. But it is he ultimately that deserves all the glory. It's he who ultimately is in control. His hand. And today again we see that he chooses which kings and which peoples he wants to bring about his will all for the good of his people it's he that is in control perfectly then we see ezra's will as all that he does and all that he is pivoted constantly uh, to that of the lord his god i think this means that he was not disappointed friends when we know god's word we know better what God says, how he has called us to live and work, and and so we know better how to pray. We all know from, I think, experience what it's like to to buy birthday presents for uh, someone that we know well. We, uh, like a best friend or maybe a spouse or a brother or a sister, uh, we know what they want. We know what they like because we know them. We know their likes and dislikes. We spent time with them. It's not complicated. I don't think it's a surprise that our prayer life is closer to the will of God the more time we spend with Him. Friends, if we want to know how better how to pray, we must be in and study and understand and trust the Word of God. As we move uh, through this section, we'll quickly see the deep importance of knowing God's word and keeping his commandments what this means for his people they're not empty and hollow words friends to be a Christian really means to read and trust and obey the word of God this is how we know God's will this is the word of the living God that we open together that Taft just read for us that Patrick read for us that we have in front of us this morning This is the word of God that we take and we remind each other of throughout the week. Friends, devote yourself to it. It's a key part of our worship, a crucial part of your devotion to the Lord. I have to go as far as to say, I think this morning, that if you don't trust the Bible, if you don't believe the Bible, then you cannot be a Christian. If you don't believe and trust the Bible, you can't be a Christian, if you love the Lord but have neglected your own reading of his word, then do not fear, though. It is not too late. We don't do this with our friends or family. If you haven't messaged your mom in a while, 
or one that you love. Maybe you've forgotten to message her for a couple of weeks. You don't just throw your hands up and say, oh, okay, well, I can never call her ever again. We don't do that. It's the same with God. Every message that I receive from my wife, Laura, is just a complete joy. Every surprise card that she receives from me, she absolutely loves it. Friends, God's love for you and his desire to hear from you and to spend time with you is far greater than any of these things. God loves you far greater, and this may surprise you, far greater than your mom loves you. And he wants to hear from you far more than that. Cry out to him. Call out to him. Friends, it is never too late to cry out to the Lord. It's never too late to open his word. Pick up your Bible this week. Reread the passage. Reread Ezra 7 to 10 or pick it up and read Psalm 2 in preparation for next week. Just small suggestions for how you can, uh, it's never too late. You can pick up his word today. Study it. Ask God for help. Tell him how much you love him. Ask him to show you what he is doing in this passage. Ask him to reveal the sin in your own heart as you study it. Bring your lives before him. This is what it looks like in the day in and day out to love him, to honor him. Friends, God just loves it when we bring our devotion to him. Now, as we move through uh, chapter seven, we see that the king here knows a lot about the people of God. Uh, He knows what they need and uh, they think. uh, And I feel like it's safe to assume that he had some sort of Jewish counselor and that this was likely Ezra. We know that the king uh, granted Ezra, uh, verse 6 tells us, all that he asked. Uh, And then in verse 11, Ezra is described again as a man learned on matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. The Lord's hand here clearly at work, again using a pagan king for his glory, uh, to bring about his purposes, even supplying animals for sacrifices and baths of oil and wine, uh, just supplying all the needs of the people. That's about 480 gallons or over 2,000 bottles of wine. I'd argue the needs of the people have not changed much in two millennia. Artaxerxes, though, also highlights the importance of the law of God, God's perfect standard. But also here, God's covenant with his people. The king understood the need for the people to know the law of God and to understand it, to apply it to their lives. And Ezra's response to this commissioning uh, by Artaxerxes, by the king, is just to praise God, blesses his name. He sees God's hand in this fulfillment of his promises uh, through this declaration. It's in verse 28 that we know uh, that all of this is from uh, Ezra's hand. There you see the use of me, me being Ezra. No mystery now of whose record this is of these events and who it is that begins to gather a people uh, there as we turn to chapter 8. With the list that begins chapter 8, we pause uh, to praise God with Ezra for the faithfulness there that had been in Babylon, clearly. Despite everything going on, wonderfully, this long list, you might wonder initially why, why it's there if you read it this week, but this list demonstrates that he was not alone, that men from other households and families had been faithful, and that they were known, they had names, 
Aaron Zazek is there. Micah Mosher is there. Richard Bassey, Marco Wabdi, Daniel Tendel, blessing Jossie. I hope you know that every name, every member of this church here in his outpost of the kingdom of God up on the top of the UAE, here in Ras al-Khaimah, every name important. Every name, uh, a name of faithfulness, of holding a testimony of what the Lord has done in a particular life. Every name important, no more, no less. Today we have that same responsibility to be faithful, to recognize faithfulness and to encourage faithfulness among our families and among our people here. As a congregation, you have uh, called us as pastors, uh, the four of us, to do that in great detail and for me and Josh to do that uh, full time during the week. But really, it's the responsibility of every member here. Every name is important. Our membership directory is a crucial record of the Lord's faithfulness here in Ras al We recognize what the Lord has done. Praise God for uh, the faithfulness that we see here week in and week out. Uh, what an encouragement uh, this is, even just by you turning up here again uh, each week. What an encouragement that is to me, but also uh, to the people sitting next to you, people behind you, the person on your row who was maybe struggling this week. What a reminder of God's faithfulness it is that there are other believers who trust him, who follow him, who pursue him here in this city. Friends, by being in each other's lives, you too can learn and and hear these encouragements. Be in each other's lives. Ask and listen to what the Lord is doing. Now, as we're back in the text, uh, don't also miss... Uh, There in verse 2, chapter 8, verse 2, look there with me, a name that did not appear in the beginning of Ezra. uh, When we saw a similar list, we see that name Hattush included, a son of David. The one who in 2 Samuel 7, God said, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here, just a small detail in verse 2, you could easily have uh, skipped over it. These small details are so important. We should be careful with them. Here we see that the Davidic line is being restored to the people, a line that we know carries the promises of God, a line that we know leads all the way to Jesus Christ himself. Friends, this list shows that these are God's people. These are Jesus' people. Verse 15 Uh, The people begin to move out on their kind of 800 or 900 mile walk uh, with Ezra finally taking stock of uh, who is with him. And he realizes they don't have any of the Levitical priests. And yet again, God delivers. For the rest of chapter 8, we see uh, the dependence and trust that the people have in God. The hand of our God mentioned twice more in this chapter and is their trust in him that the people uh, begin to with uh, their walk in prayer and fasting. This demonstrates their, their trust in him. The king, of course, after Xerxes, will be used for protection and resources. Yet it is clear to them, clear to us today, that it is the Lord's hand that is on them throughout. Now, like celebrities walking through the region, who are able to, celebrities, we see them in the, the press, 
Uh, they can just walk through large crowds because they have these huge bodyguards using their arms, just clearing the way. That means that people like Taylor Swift can just walk through a crowd of people without uh, having to stop or pause. Here we see the people of God, it says, delivered from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. The Lord clearly making their path clear. His hand, his arm going before them. All that they were doing clearly challenging and difficult, yet they knew the Lord was with them, and so they had nothing to fear. Their prayer and their their fasting demonstrated this wonderfully. And then their planning and their walking and their stepping out demonstrated, showed their faith in action. I think the the way that verse 31 is written there makes me think that there probably were attacks and ambushes that came through. Let me ask you, does your life reflect an ongoing daily dependence on God? Does your life reflect an ongoing and a daily dependence on God? We all know that living in this world uh, means that we will experience persecution and hardship. For the Christian, there is no doubt of this. But as the people of God, we don't need to fear the threats and the dangers of the enemy, for we can know, like these people did, God's good hand in it all. And by the end of chapter 8, we see that Ezra has been introduced. Uh, He has been shown to be faithful and capable in all that he does. Large amounts of money uh, had been entrusted uh, to this group. And we see it all documented. Records, accountability, Financial transparency, all here shown to be signs of faithfulness. This is who Ezra is, above board in all of his dealings, above reproach, able to teach, not a lover of money, able to manage his household well. Qualifications we remember, we understand, all here clearly shown Uh, to be who Ezra is as God's chosen man. Faithful to his people, faithful to the word of God, and faithful to God himself. That is who Ezra is, devoted to live out, to teach and to lead God's people through all that is required of him, through the good and the bad. That brings us to our second point, chapters 9 and 10. A people of disobedience. A people of disobedience. The book shifts, I think, seriously at this point, uh, where for uh, an Old Testament book, we almost know that things, I think, are going a little bit too well at this point. People have graciously been restored by God, brought back to him, brought back to the promised land. Uh, The temple's been restored. The priests are in town. They have a strong leader. As chapter 9 opens, a holy and perfect and generous God here showing His faithfulness, yet in catastrophic clarity for us. Verse 1 reveals that his people, it says, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. For, in verse 2 continues, they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed. And it goes on, and the leaders and the priests are some of the worst 
I mean, maybe they didn't know. Maybe this was just a simple mistake, a misunderstanding. People had been away so long. I mean, what else were they meant to do? R.C. Sproul reminds us that it's God. Uh, He's not said to be love, 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 or wrath, 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 but he is holy, holy, holy. God is pure, spotless, perfect, bright, awesome in his holiness, like nothing we can imagine in his purity and in his sacred self. He has won freedom for his people and delivered them safely here beyond the river. Yet so quickly have his people turned away from his holy face. Sadly. Brutally, disobedience, where there should have been devotion. You might read this chapter and think, what on earth is going on here? Why is this even a big deal? I mean, who cares? It might be what you thought as you read that this week. Let me read from Exodus 34 for us. Behold, I'm making a covenant. Observe what I command you this day. This is God speaking. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. This is what God required. The people of God are meant to be a holy people, separated to serve a holy and a living God, the one who controls the heavens and the earth and all within it, the one who drives out enemies before them, who had safely delivered this people through the sea and to the land that he had promised and brought them back again. He had called them to be devoted to him and to honor and glorify his name by being careful about who is and who isn't the people of God. This time, the people of God were a holy nation, an organized people set apart, led by him, all for his glory and his renown among the nations. Preparing for one day when there would come a new king, a new Lord that would fulfill God's promises to Abraham and would welcome in the nations. What here was a people of heritage would one day become a people of hearts of new hearts. It was blood that brought together these people here in Ezra. Yet with Christ, we see the nations brought in by his blood alone. The original people, the, they, here they had God's word. Here we see they disobeyed. The holy God of the Bible had given them his law, his many laws and his statutes that all pointed to his holy standard. Yet in this area of marriage, we see that even just breaking that rule enough was too much. Even that alone caused them to fall short. And no doubt this was not their only sin. But in verse 3, we see how serious this is and then all demonstrated by how Ezra responds. In these four verses, we see Ezra rips his clothes trembles in fear, fasts, and falls down to the floor in prayer before the Lord. So horrified 
by this is as he as he fully understands the consequences that this news brings the sin and disrespect before a god he so deeply adores friends i wonder how you view your sin how do you view your own sin how do you view the sin of others your brothers and sisters around you if you're a christian you will view it differently to those who are not Christians here today. And for the Christian, your sin should grieve you. Friend, deep are the wounds of your sin before and against a holy and a perfect God. You should feel convicted as you realize the seriousness and the weight of it. Almost overwhelming should be the way it disrupts and disgraces. Yet we know wonderfully that there is hope that we need not despair friends wonderfully this is why christ came to leave heaven and earth enter our world to take all this weight take it from you lifting it off your shoulders not to just throw it away and make it disappear but to take it on himself he took your guilt he took your shame And there, all of it, all the wrath of God, everything that you deserve poured out on him on the cross. There in God's perfection, his holiness, but also his love and his justice. Friends, there had to be consequences for the sin and disobedience of the people. And that means you and that means me. The consequences of your sin and my sin, exactly the same. We'll see in a minute what this meant for the Israelites, but for you it should have meant sin. It should have meant sin and death. should have meant death and eternal punishment. If you're not a Christian here today, then sadly, what this means for you, whether you're seven, whether you're 17 or 70 this morning, you are all in the same situation before this holy God. All will stand before him. Now from birth, every one of us born a sinner, we have all disobeyed God. The law of God that that we read about here, that's still the same, it all shows us that God's holy standard all points to our need for him, something that we cannot fulfill on our own, something that the amount of money in your bank account or how kind or how good you are will never be enough. Shows how even just one sin against a holy God deserves death and punishment. There is only one who ever lived. Only one who ever came that could fulfill all that it says. In full obedience and righteousness. There standing at the cross, Christ died. Rising three days later so that many sinners can be reconciled to God and receive his righteousness, meaning his right standard, receiving a new heart, now brought into the people of God. All of this, just a free gift available to you if you call out to him. All only by his grace, meaning that you don't deserve it, but he offers it to you as a free gift. In yourself, you are in exactly the same situation that Ezra explains there in verse 6. It says, 
Your iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Verse 9 carries on, for we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love. Friend, how true is this? How overwhelming is our sin that we not only sink in it, in the waters of it, but actually we're completely dead on the bottom of the sea. God, God has made a way through Christ. He reaches into the depths. He pulls us out and he establishes us in his people, sinners reconciled to himself all by his hand. As we return to chapter nine, it's amazing here that Ezra, we heard how he's a man of devotion, man of faithfulness. Yet here we see that he identifies with the people. Language he prays, our iniquities, our heads, our guilt, our fathers. He includes himself with the people. He identifies with their sin. Friends, all as Christ does as he enters into this world and takes on our sin and our shame. Ezra, just a type of Christ. Type of wonderful, glorious leader who is faithful and who identifies with his people. And what does Ezra do here? He confesses, like we've done this morning, like uh, Patrick wonderfully led us to do, where before he brought praise to God, as we heard a few minutes ago, he now brings confession of sin. All on behalf of the covenant community, he lays it all bare before God, their lives clearly have begun to look like the world. Friends, as a church here, if you're a member here, if you're a Christian, then we must take sin and separation seriously. It's for your good. It's for the glory of God. God is holy and he has given us his word to live by and sin should shock us. Living by God's word is difficult. We all know that, but it's not confusing. It means we don't accept the God of other religions or the gods of other societies. We don't agree when the world wants us to compromise what the Word of God says, whether that's on gender or that's on abortion, or we don't agree that the world says your worth is in what your bank balance says, or when the world says you're worth more by the color of your skin. Friends, I wonder what other things you have married your life to that are confusing to this watching world. Is it money and success? Is it dating an unbeliever or is it an issue of sex and purity? Perhaps it's with your thoughts and your speech. Maybe you haven't quite married those things. Perhaps you're flirting with them. Perhaps you're considering them in your mind. Perhaps you've even been on a few dates mentally with them as you think, how can I bring those two things together? In verse 11, here, clear for us. Three words standing out. Impure, impurity, uncleanness. Here it was marrying foreign men and women. For you, I think it's likely quite different. Be clear. Christian this morning. Be clear that there can be no compromise in the Christian life. 
like we're about to see the people do. We need to come before God in repentance. Verse 15 here shows just how uh, just and how merciful he is. I think we can't misunderstand just how amazing it is that there was even a people in Jerusalem at this time. Even that itself is an example, perfect demonstration of just how merciful he is that there was even a people left after how they had disobeyed him. God will always do us good, even when we can't see it or understand it. That is who he is. That is what he is doing. So the people see, as we carry on, the devotion and the distress of Ezra. As we turn to chapter 10, we conclude the book. And as is so often the case, a life of obedience and worship to God is is seen and then impacts those around him. This happens to Ezra, and I think this happens to us. People see it when we are obedient and we worship God. Ezra is a wonderful example. He prays and he weeps at the impact of sin, and the people hear and they join. He doesn't scream and shout at people as he was probably tempted to do. His face immediately turns to God, and the people begin to also. They know they have broken faith, as verse 2 there says in chapter 10. But I think we see that there is a clear willingness of the people to change and repent. As we consider this great divorce that follows, we're not seeing the demands of a dominant leader, but a God-focused obedience. And the people see this and they follow this in Ezra. And that willingness is seen there in verses 7 to 9. Ezra asks the men to come uh, to represent the people, and they do. And then we see that the decision is confirmed that the foreign women should be divorced in verse 11. The foreign women should be divorced. Verses 12 to 15 show the outworking of this. And verse 15 either showing that there was some disagreement among the men. But I think what's more likely there in verse 15 is that there was a desire among some of the men just to make it happen a little bit quicker. Uh, Then until the end We see that over uh, three months, the issue was reviewed and that over 100 families were impacted. I think it's clear here that with an unusual situation comes an unusual outcome, one that is entirely necessary. So serious was the, the sin among the people that it had to be removed for the people to carry on. And we should make no mistake, it's clear that in Malachi 2 or Matthew 19, God despises divorce. I think we see Matthew 19 allowing it only when the scenario of sexual immorality is present. God loves marriage and despises divorce. Yet here, after a long and serious reflection, the seriousness of the sin of intermarrying allows for these divorces to take place. It was a desperate remedy, to say the least, but one that the men, and clearly I think the Jewish women, were willing to follow through with. This sin, therefore, carved out right from the heart of the people, so as not to further rot uh, the lot there. I wonder how seriously do we take our sin? Friends, how 
likely, how willing are we to carve out the sin from our own hearts? Let me ask you this morning, have you become too comfortable with your own sin? Are you happy living alongside it? Has it become a part of your world? As we conclude the book and our time together this morning, we have the opportunity to reflect on the sovereignty of God and how holy and perfect he is in all of his ways. Even here with these unusual divorces that seem just so alien to us, but time and time again, he causes people to live for him and not to live for this world. In our lives today, we are called to live lives of faithfulness, of obedience, all to Christ, this God who is holy, holy, holy. This God who has demonstrated his grace and his mercy to us by sending his only perfect son. It's for his glory that we are set aside and to be holy. Our lives are a living sacrifice before his throne. It is in response to this mercy that we live for him. I think as we conclude, some of us need to begin by confessing our sin before him. Or we all need to lift our hearts in praise. There is none beside him. Merciful and mighty is he, Lord God Almighty, blessed Trinity.